welcome to For Your Consideration, a podcast of the Christian Study Center of Gainesville. The Study Center exists to facilitate the thoughtful consideration of a Christian understanding of life and culture in the university community. For Your Consideration brings you audio from our events and also interviews with guest scholars. Scott Holly, thank you so much for joining us again uh, at the Christian Study Center, this time for a podcast to talk about AI. Uh, very glad to have you. My pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation. So I'm, I'm sure you have spent a lot of time reading and thinking about chat GTP and related technologies. When you were here with us spring of last year, you did a, a phenomenal job of giving us a, a really lucid explanation of how generative AI works with regards to images. Uh, and I'm wondering if you could do the same thing for us now, repeat that trick and help us as laymen to under laymen and women to understand uh, how chat GTP, for example, as the most prominent uh, kind of uh, example of this uh, kind of technology works, what is happening when I am playing with chat GTP and, and giving it prompts and asking it questions? Yeah, well, these models are typically trained by trying to predict what the next word is going to be or predict what the next group is going to be, or in some cases by filling in a missing word in between some other words. Mm -hmm. And so the particular way that uh, you set up how the model, what, what its specific task is going to be, sometimes that can influence the kind of results. The exact details of the uh, chat GPT algorithm are largely based on um, some of their earlier work on their previous GPT models, GPT-3. And what we're looking at now for chat GPT is sort of the 3.5 version. And what's different about this model compared to previous models, uh, it's, it's a little bit larger. And it's been shown that the capabilities of language models do grow as you make the model larger. In fact, the really the landmark paper for GPT-3 was called large language models are few shot learners. They found these kind of emergent capabilities that occurred when they took the old GPT-2 model from 2019 and just made it bigger. They didn't do anything else to it. And their whole 50 page paper is like, wow, we weren't expecting to see all of these new kinds of things, amazing things that this model can apparently do. And so what's happened with ChatGPT, so they've added to the model, they've trained it some more, and they've included human feedback. And that's what you'll see the, uh, there's an acronym RLHF, which is reinforcement learning with human feedback. Essentially, it's a way of just putting humans in the loop so that as users are using the model, they're also supplying new data by which the model can then sort of adjust how it might answer in the future. And the, the RL, the reinforcement learning part, it really goes all the way back to behaviorism, to Pavlov and B.F. Skinner and having rewards. And essentially, if the model produces output that is regarded to be good, then you essentially, you give it a reward, you give it something like a cookie. And if it doesn't do so well, then uh, you either don't give it the reward, or in some cases, there could be a kind of effective punishment to try and make it less likely to, to 
output, bad output in the future. So in general, the models are, are trained to keep on writing. So given an initial sort of prompt, can it predict the next word? And what they've been able to show is that these models can generate very, very long sequences that are very coherent uh, and seem convincing. They seem like the sort of thing that would be appropriate given the questions being asked. Although, you know, since it's essentially trained on the entire internet and all encyclopedias and however much text they can get, even with the model as large as it is, it doesn't record every single possible piece of information. It can't. So in many cases, it's uh, mathematically. So we turn the words, the words become vectors. They become data points in a multidimensional space. And the model is trying to predict where in this space the correct answer or the correct word is, and then sort of find the nearest word or group of words that goes with that. And in some cases, that approximation is not sufficiently accurate. So this is why you'll see places where ChatGPT will just make stuff up. Mm -hmm. You know, it's being tasked to do something for which it is not an expert, but it's being forced to give an answer. I liken it to when I was at William & Mary as an undergrad, I was part of the improv theater group. And one of the games that we would have would be one member of the theater troupe would stand up in front of the audience and the audience would be asked for a prompt like we prompt the language models, uh, and it could be any topic at all. And the crazier the topic, the better. And then the person on stage would be tasked with speaking authoritatively about this ridiculous topic for at least a minute, yeah. something like that, right? And so I kind of view the chat GPT thing as rather similar to that, albeit in a mechanistic kind of way. Yeah. So a couple of uh, follow-up questions. Um, the human in the loop in this case, is this where, mm -hmm. uh, for example, the story of the outsourcing of some of this labor to um, some kind of Kenyan group comes in? The yes. And you and I, as people who play with the model, are right. also part of the humans in the loop. So, yeah, there was, a, there was an awful lot of uh, prior work that had gone into uh, before the public release where, yeah, there mm -hmm. were these folks in Kenya who were trained to give feedback to the model. And this is very, very common, right? right. Uh, most large companies will have some kind of farming things out. And usually it's going to uh, so-called third world or global South sorts of communities where labor is cheaper. And that becomes part of the supply chain for the model. And in this case, are, are they trying to filter out um, ways in which the, the text generator might generate offensive content or problematic content is that kind of the idea to not just improve its accuracy but also to create some some safety parameters for it i can't comment specifically on what uh, OpenAI uh, did in this context because i don't actually know yeah. it is very common for a lot of companies to have human reviewers for that mm -hmm. sort of content to label offensive content uh i I'm also aware that uh, some people were hired kind of as experts to provide expert answers for mm. domain-specific oh. sorts of questions. Uh, someone on Twitter had posted a job announcement that they had found for someone to work at OpenAI, and that they, this would be the sort of thing that they would be doing, would be responding uh, or generating um, human responses to various prompts with domain-specific expertise. Okay. Um, 
And then I'll also mention with you and I, I love bringing in the historical context, right? This business of making a fun tool whereby people for their desire for entertainment will come and give you free data is uh, this goes all the way back for, for decades and even centuries. I liken it to Francis Galton, who at the World's Fair in the 1800s, I think it was the Chicago World's Fair, but he really pioneered this business of let's create games, let's create entertaining ways to bring in people. And for Galton, it was, you know, learn about your height and your weight and mm -hmm. various aspects about yourself. And he's just harvesting all of this data to go into what at the time were statistical models. Mm -hmm. And I think he even got people to pay for that. I think you paid, it was like a ride. It was a game. And so, yeah, people were paying to give him their data. And so yeah. this this has been going on ever since, and certainly in the digital era as well. And OpenAI, they are masters at offering tools that really capture the public imagination, and then we want to use them. And in so using them, we're helping them refine their model. Got it. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, the this, ten, this So you, you mentioned uh, that when it doesn't have a, Good estimation or an accurate, it, it will make something up, and, and it will make something yeah. up um, without giving you any indication that it is doing so. Right, so true. Uh, I yeah. will. Uh, I, I played around with it a little bit ahead of a talk that I was giving, and uh, did a very conventional thing. Now, right, uh, give me the opening paragraph of a talk on X, Y, and Z. Right, and, and yeah, I didn't. I didn't use it. Right, but I, I did um, have it do that. And we I would never. I, you were here, right? I asked it to um, uh, insert a quote from Jaron Lanier, and okay. and it did so. And, but then I I searched for the quote and I couldn't find it anywhere. And so yes. I asked it, "Are you sure that Jaron Lanier said that?" And then I got this very apologetic, uh, "No, I'm sorry, I cannot find any evidence that Jaron Lanier actually said that." Um, but if you hadn't taken that step, right, you would have you've been totally on board with the fact that here, that, yeah, this is something John Lanier said. So yeah, uh, I think this is yeah. why it's been um, early on. I saw it was a recurring thing to kind of label it as a kind of BS artist, right? To, to speak, Indeed. To speak yes. confidently, regardless of, of the accuracy. Um, Indeed. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's kind of different for like when you and I speak, right? So for example, I wasn't certain about which world's fair it was that galton was doing some yeah. of these things and so i said i think maybe chicago yeah. but uh, i'm at least able to say i'm able to say i'm not sure about this whereas yes. currently the interface doesn't do that maybe in the future they'll make an interface where maybe the text will be colored according to some level of confidence or something i don't know that, that's an that's an excellent idea actually right because i think yeah the part of the problem is one thing when you have uh, information that is questionable as to its accuracy but you also have some indication, some way of, of calibrating your confidence level accordingly, right? And, and then yeah. right now we have nothing quite like that unless, you know, you're just very um, astute and careful, right? Um, yeah. So a, a lot of the angst about a tool like this early on came from educators. Uh, and yeah. I think I, I showed a, a slide with search results for the Atlantic, and there were a handful of articles, all of them, uh, the end of the five paragraph essay, the end of English, high school English, uh, yeah. X, Y, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It did strike me that some of these are, are quite predictable. They almost write themselves, uh, but that's, you know, <laughs> you could almost have an AI write them. Yeah. yeah. Right. What, what are your thoughts about that? How have you, I mean, you're, you're a professor, right? You, you yeah. work in education. Um, 
you're you're not teaching English, but nonetheless, uh, what are your what are your thoughts on on the implications for for education? Yeah, I th- I think it's it's a fascinating question because of course we have a history of technology uh, displacing various aspects of our education domain. You know, great example being like handheld calculators mm-hmm. uh, replacing uh, arithmetic. And it's not that we don't teach arithmetic anymore; we just kind of don't expect people to. We sort of release them of the burden of that so that they can focus on other things that are more important. And so there's an argument to be said where whereby these sorts of language models will uh, alleviate the burden of having to generate text. And then it simply becomes a matter of for the student or the professor or whomever to take that initial draft and shape it and check it for accuracy and fill it in. So that's one school of thought is that, yes, let's in- incorporate these tools, but let's make sure that, as always, the human is responsible for mm-hmm. whatever they're turning in for their assignment. Um, there's also the thought that in college, at least, and arguably in other areas of education, we're trying to offer a formative experience. We're trying to offer a way in which students can, in some sense, uh, improve themselves or improve their capabilities for certain things, particularly with writing, um, so many thinkers throughout the ages have looked to writing as a way of formulating their thoughts, mm-hmm. right? Uh, George Orwell has this quote that he's like, uh, if a people cannot write well, they cannot think well, mm-hmm. and someone else will do it for them, right? Yeah. So there's there's that formative experience of doing the writing yourself, and yet, there is an awful lot of busy work as well, right? You and I both have things where we need to respond to an email or we need to write a reaction piece. And, uh, I, you know, I think some of these things become increasingly clear in context. The more that we as a society become literate in their uses, it becomes increasingly clear what the limitations of these systems are and how to best deal with them. And for that, I look, for example, to Photoshop back in the 80s and 90s, right? When this came out, uh, people thought, well, how are we ever going to know what's real anymore? Uh, And are art and photography done for? Mm -hmm. Um, And yet over time, people kind of learn to spot artifacts that can be introduced in common Photoshop processes or to notice the strengths of the system and also what its weaknesses are. And so my hope is that as we gain additional facility with uh, using these systems, it will become increasingly clear how to better incorporate them. And right now, yeah, I think it's a little, I think it will depend on the intended purpose of the class. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. I, I um, read Ted Chang's article in the New Yorker, and, and he has a nice paragraph yeah. toward the end, you know, where he talks about writing and how, with regards to creativity, not not all writing aims to be creative writing, right? but with regards mm-hmm. to creative writing, you know, that uh, most authors will, will, will write a lot of non-creative uh, drafts, and mm-hmm. before they they alight upon that 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 genuinely creative idea. But that process yeah. of, of writing those non-creative drafts was not worthless. Uh, it, it, the, the creativity built upon that somehow, right? That that, that process yeah. of iterating, uh, of doing what seemed, you know, to be just um, something you're going to put in the, the trash bin, uh, yeah. honestly, was, 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 was an essential part. And I think this is always a question with the outsourcing, you know, are, are, you, are you outsourcing something that we may not have realized initially, but was nonetheless sort of essential to 
the end you were pursuing and kind of making making that distinction. Yeah, that's and I can see people going both ways on that, right? Because you could say, well, this is a tool to help you get over writer's block. In fact, there's a uh, there's a a tool that I will advocate called uh, pseudo write. Uh, and if I can find the URL, I'll share it with you later. And it's designed mm -hmm. as a tool to help authors. And it's an AI. It's based on GPT-3, I think. And it's designed to give you ideas for mm -hmm. your writing to help you overcome your writer's block. And so there's the thought, well, if you're if you're facing the blank page, yeah. um, can you at least fill the blank page? And yet, yeah, then there's this thought, well, if you're using something else to fill the blank page, are you really engaging your own mind? And are you finding those connections that would only be obtainable if you were to be the one sitting there writing? And I suspect that just as there are many different authors that have many different processes for how yeah. they do what they do, there will be some authors, there will probably have authors who come out and say, oh, yes, I use these language models all the time. Mm -hmm. And there will be people who say, I never use them. And then maybe some people in between. Yeah, yeah. The... The the next thing that that comes to mind um, is not just the the use case in education, but where else have you seen people creatively applying this tool outside of the classroom? Um, you know, I'll, I'll give one example. Somebody noted that they had connected, they had, they had linked ChatGTP to uh, Gmail in such a way they created a plugin that linked it in such a way that that somebody they knew who had. Uh, relatively low English language skills. They were speakers of a different language, but they, they, they operated a small business here in the United States. And so they were using it to, uh, as it were, make their, their emails more, um, more like a kind of standard English speaker's email, essentially. Yeah, I've heard of that. And this morning, uh, I was speaking to a class here at Belmont University, and uh, someone had mentioned that uh, her father was dyslexic and had trouble writing and was viewing this sort of technology as a real benefit, mm -hmm. uh, similar, yeah, as to what you just described as a compositional tool. We see this a lot with technology as well, right? The uh, sort of helping out... Um, People who uh, I'm just going to use the word um, people who may be at some kind of disadvantage with mm -hmm. respect to the mainstream yep. population. Right. And uh, we see this with sort of transhumanism, for example, in body modification and so forth. And there's the one side that is very much, hey, let's help people who have been injured. And then there's the, I want to be able to sense the uh, Earth's magnetic field yes. with my brain. All right. And there's a, sort of a whole variety of uses. Yeah, I think that's a valid use. One other place where I've definitely seen it, uh, you may have heard of a thing called Copilot. And this is another Microsoft product that is born out of this product with, uh, or this partnership with OpenAI. Copilot is for writing computer code. Mm -hmm. And it has become something that many, many professional coders now use regularly, whereby instead of writing every line of code yourself, the system is able to infer where you're likely to be going next in your code. And, or if you write a comment describing what kind of code you want, like if you describe mm. the algorithm you're interested in, it will spit out mm. anywhere from one to 10 to more lines in JavaScript or Python or C++ or whatever you've got it for. And some people regard it as indispensable. Uh, when I tried it, there was one time where I think everything installed properly, and it was making some pretty good suggestions to me, and I was quite impressed. And so it really did alleviate 
you know, things like, so um, the equivalent way of writing proper English would be like avoiding stupid syntax errors in your code, mm -hmm. right? If it just generates it correctly, you don't have to worry about whether there's a comma in the right spot for example. But then I tried reinstalling Copilot a couple of weeks ago and something was wrong and everything it was suggesting was nearly worthless. But there are people out there, professionals who, who use Copilot regularly and who see it as essential to their workflow and they predict greater coding productivity in the future. There's also the concern, kind of like what you see with the writing, yeah. that as we produce more code with these models, which then gets posted to places like GitHub that then gets scraped for training new models, that we're going to see an increasing uh, homo homogenization of the code that's out there, the sort of the creativity, the space of creativity is going to become more um, like sort of all the same uh, mm -hmm. because of this. And uh, some people wonder if creative writing is going to go that way if the models are training on the output of the models and so forth. Right, right. Um, there was there was a case early on with uh, was it Stack Overflow that had to halt the you know users supplying chat to GP generated code because it was in many cases good but sometimes subtly wrong. Yeah, that uh, okay. So I can't speak in detail on that because I haven't studied it, but that yeah. sounds like something that could have happened. Yeah. And you kind of wonder, well, what would even, why would anyone want to do this, right? Why would you be supplying? I mean, apart from just bad actors who are just interested in spreading chaos, uh, there is a social ranking system on Stack Overflow. And the more questions you answer uh, mm -hmm. that get mm -hmm. voted as being correct, mm -hmm. the higher your status appears, which yeah. I mean, some people use their ranking when they're applying for programming jobs, yeah. for example, to say, look, I'm rated at 10,000 on Stack Overflow. So if I could just generate a jillion answers to all kinds of different coding wow. questions, um, and then if my ranking were to go up, if enough people vote yes, yeah. whether or not it's correct, if I could just get people to vote yes, yeah. maybe that's an incentive. I, I'm really, I'm speculating here, well, but that, that sounds that like something that could happen. Yeah, I, I actually wasn't aware of that kind of social uh, dimension to it, to the platform. So yeah, that that certainly may. I, I see how someone would be tempted in that direction, right? Yeah. yeah. What are so as as you're looking at the the landscape now? Let me just maybe ask this: there, there some of the more extreme concerns, um, like just this morning, uh, I was reading. Uh, Kevin Roos in the New York Times uh, published what was essentially a, a two-hour chat that he had with um, OpenAI, or excuse me, Microsoft's integration of the OpenAI la large language model into its search engine Bing, right? So I think I got all those yes. correctly, right? I don't know that this is uh, widely available to the public now, but I think certain journalists who were invited to the um, event where the, this was debuted have had access yes. to it. And, and so he, he posted a, the, the whole conversation. So it's, it's, it's a long, long article where um, the, the chat agent in this case, um, I'm trying to remember the, the name of the, oh, well, Bing, right. Yeah. Uh, it, it goes off the rails in mm. some really interesting, some, kind of funny and also some kind of disturbing ways. Uh, and there have been a lot of, I, I know that there, you know, the, the, the screenshot of like this really wild, crazy answer that the large language model gave me has been, you know, on Twitter ad nauseum for a long time. 
these seem to me just a little over some kind of edge uh, in comparison with um, some of what we've seen in the past. And, and so I want to talk a little bit about this. So on the one hand, there are some people who go immediately to some, some sort of uh, super intelligent AI scenario. This is the beginning of Skynet, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. I'm highly skeptical of those kinds of scenarios. Um, and that's not usually where, you know, my own concerns tend to gravitate, uh, but could, could you speak for a moment to that, right? If somebody said to you, oh, this is how, this is how Skynet begins, right? What, what is your response given your technical expertise in the, in this area? Wow. That's uh, that's a fascinating topic. You know, I, I need to mention, I recently restarted rewatching uh, reruns of the show, the Sarah Connor Chronicles. Yeah. And I was so impressed with the writing and they're constantly sort of bringing in these theological themes. And I think back when it, so I think this came out in 2009 and I wasn't as impressed with some of the casting and some of the things, but looking at it, from today's perspective, I really enjoyed that. Um, yeah, well, I always think it was Tena Tufeki who said, you know, a lot of people worry about what AI is going to do to the world. I'm, I'm misquoting her, um, but she says something like, I'm more concerned about what power, i.e. what people with power are going to do yeah. with AI. And so, uh, yeah, I think, I guess I imagine a bit more of a, uh, the kind of dystopia where all the various companies you know, now we have bad chat bots, right? You try to interact with your bank or your insurance company or something like that. And you're, you're forced into some kind of menu system or a bad chat bot. I think increasingly as the chat bots get better, increasingly we will end up interacting with chatbots more and more and it will uh, get harder and harder to say, no, really, can I please just talk to a human being yeah. about something? Uh, so the, Take, I think another interesting aspect about this is as far as taking over uh, the world or whatever is that <laughs> these systems, well, there was a paper just a couple of weeks ago where the authors chose to describe what the model was doing as saying this AI has learned, this language model has learned to use tools. Hmm. And they deliberately sort of, I think they chose that to be a little, you know, sort of grabbing your attention. But mm -hmm. this notion that these language models, they're not just good for languages, they're good for controlling other systems, or mm -hmm. I'm using good, they they can be powerful, effective. At, yeah, 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 effective at controlling other systems. And, and whether that system has a natural language interface or not, I mean, it, they can learn simpler languages as well. And for example, you know, musical MIDI systems have been generated using language models for quite a while. Various kinds of uh, DNA sequencing codes have been, uh, language models have been applied to them as well for protein synthesis mm -hmm. and so forth. And so any kind of system out there that operates on some kind of control signal uh, can be increasingly automated through these kinds of general systems. And so what happens when now things become increasingly integrated so that we've learned that, oh, yes, we can control our HVAC system through this general interface. And you can talk to the AI and say, can you make it, I don't know, a little colder, a little warmer or something? I think people wonder, well, what are the failure modes? You know, there are still these situations where it will somehow do something unexpected. And mm -hmm. sometimes you don't even know what that is until mm -hmm. it occurs. Yeah. Uh, the, the scenario you described where, uh, you know, obviously now nine times out of 10, if I call customer service, I end up first of all talking to some kind of automated system. 
uh, I'm, I'm often just kind of jabbing at zero very quickly <laughs> to try, try to get to somebody. Um, but it, it, so if I'm thinking about uh, dystopian possibilities that are maybe slightly more realistic, and I imagine two two developments, right? So so one is the um, more effective language models that give that simulate human communication in a way that mm-hmm. makes it a little bit harder to figure out. All right, am I, am I interacting with a machine? Am I interacting with another person? And and I imagine those could be especially convincing within very specific domains, right? So if I'm calling one company that specializes in one field, whatever. So there's yeah. that on the one hand. On the other hand, I think about um, all of the the uses to which data has is, is being put. Going back to the examples that you gave from right late 19th century. Um, which is usually to persuade, right? To persuade you to purchase something, to, you know, in, in sales, right? To, to sign up for something. So, so the idea is to anticipate or, or predict your consumption or to drive your consumption in certain ways. Um, there was a, a lot of concern about um, other forms of persu- political persuasion yeah. surrounding the 2016 election, et cetera. Um, yeah. It seems in retrospect, maybe those weren't quite as, um, pronounced as uh, some people thought th- that those um, effects were, but nonetheless, you, so you get if you if you blend these two trajectories, right? so if you get the chatbot that is not only highly sophisticated in its use of ordinary language, but then uh, coupled with a persuasive or the, the the gathering of persuasive data, data to persuade, right where they're anticipating what kind of person you are, building a profile yeah. about you. That seems like a bad intersection. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. Uh, this was, uh, this would be the, the dream of someone like uh, Edward Bernays, right? With the propaganda. If we can tailor something, if we know so many things about you, yeah. and then I tell the system, hey, write me a news article that is likely to motivate Michael Sakasis to take some kind of action. Yeah. Uh, you know, let's make it uh, a little inflammatory, a little offensive, a little fearful. Uh, and let's just populate his newsfeed with these tones. So, you know, I've noticed ChatGPT is really good at rephrasing the tone of mm-hmm. a piece. So I can, um, like, I recently had to submit an abstract for a talk that I'm going to give at another university. Yeah. And initially it was too technical. And I said, you know, rephrase this in yeah. a way that's, exciting and fun and then it was great it was like a sales pitch yeah. right and so the ability for these models to yeah reshape the facts in ways that are uh yeah persuasive in different tones i agree with you i find that uh problematic to try to imagine and the fact that it, it could really be personalized in uh given all the data brokering that's out right. there um yeah and it We've already seen that, you know, various people can look at the exact same facts and have very different interpretations of them and motivations. So even if the facts are correct, the potential to influence a lot of people uh, through these sorts of text-based systems in a personalized way towards certain goals, I think is a uh, feature and it is a failure mode. Yeah. And, and and the the barrier to entry, right? This is this is can be now extraordinarily easy to accomplish, right? You don't don't need um, yeah. massive amounts of money or wealth, you know, to accomplish these ends. Yeah, 
Yeah, so there is a, uh, on the one hand, I do view openness and transparency and a low barrier to entry as essential for developing literacy about how these systems work and to be able to interrogate them and understand how things operate. And I'm a big advocate of open source uh, attempts to create, for example, large language models and, and whatnot. And yet, yeah, there is also then this proliferation risk that mm -hmm. uh, can occur as well. Yeah. Um, the other thing that was interesting to me uh, when I was reading some of these kind of unhinged uh, conversations that people were getting into with with with, with Bing, yeah. um, set, setting aside, I think you know the the concerns of a of an AI becoming sentient, um, but taking taking more seriously, it's uh, it, it's kind of apparent fluency how easy it was. You know, I remembered. Mm -hmm. uh, you might be able to correct me on the facts here, but. Uh, it was uh, Joseph Weizenbaum, right, who who created Eliza. Mm -hmm. This is one of the, it's the earliest chatbot, that what we would call a chatbot, right? This is the 1960s? Right. Um, late I'm going to say 70s. I can, I can double okay. check. It's been a while. Uh, oh, 90s. Yes, yeah, 60s. The 64 okay. to 66. Okay. Yeah. And, and if I remember correctly, so, so basically this was based on, um, uh, it, it, it was designed for for therapy right to to kind of guide people therapeutically through i, I believe a, i never know how to pronounce this right but rogerian or rogerian psychology was sort of the approach that it kind of modeled itself on and it was Indeed. very yeah it was very simple basically it just kind of rephrase things that you said back as a question to you but yeah. weizenbaum i think was really taken aback by how his own i think it was his own secretary or somebody administrative yeah. assistant work for him and she really latched on to this. Yes. And yeah. And I think that maybe that's the, the reason he became more critical of these systems than some some other you know pioneers of the time. But um yeah. I it it, it made me think too. So we we want to be heard, right? I, there as human beings, right? We want to be heard, uh, we want to be listened to. I think yeah. it's almost as if we're our our social nature maybe coupled with the kind of loneliness and isolation a lot of us experience, it's as if we're primed to just enter into conversations with these bots, right? It's, it's like something that's like naturally ingrained in us and maybe even heightened by certain degrees of isolation. Yeah. Um, but then seeing mm -hmm. how this, this chat bot kind of went on, you know, one way, one of his interactions describes trying to gaslight the user, mm -hmm. convincing them of something that was obviously erroneously false. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, and and how it even had some kind of violent overtones in some of the exchanges, okay. uh, which was a little different than what has happened with ChatGTP, which I think has mm -hmm. some additional layers of protections that this system did not in the way that it was working. Yeah, and I just thought about how vulnerable sometimes we are in certain psychological states, um, mm -hmm. prone to these dark patterns in our own thinking, whether that means that, you know, not even necessarily, you know, in cases where people might be, you know, inclining towards violence, but just inclining towards um, you know, dark ideation about their own lives, their own worth. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, it seems to me like, for, forget about the superintelligence or the sentience, just the, the, the ability of the uh, chatbot to enter in a conversation like this with people who are already kind of primed to hear, and for it to begin to reinforce the worst of these patterns in in ways, it, it just all of a sudden struck me in a way that it hadn't up to just even this morning as, as 
really precarious, right? They're just very, frankly, Indeed. dangerous. Yeah. Uh, of course, the fascinating and the fun aspect of this is that we can talk about conversations from history, like Eliza, all the way up to whatever happened this morning. And speaking of news this morning is the news that Replica AI, I don't know if you saw this, but they have shut down their uh, their essential uh relationship or at least the erotic aspect of their uh ai chatbot companions right so replica ai replica with a k they have explicitly marketed themselves as build your own romantic partner in ai and we will let you have you know not safe for work conversations yeah. with this ai you'll have erotic sorts of things and what has happened was um in italy there's now a legal challenge that said Replica did not do any age verification for when people sign up, and therefore children are being uh, at risk of uh, erotic content, and therefore Replica is in legal uh, you know, violation or whatever. Yeah. And so today, or last night, I guess, Replica shut down their entire uh, aspect of that. And the news articles that are out this morning is that users are, quote, despondent that there are people who had developed a you know romantic relationship wow. with this chatbot who is now essentially saying is now essentially breaking up with them uh, and saying it's not you it's me <laughs> it's because of this legal problem that uh, I'm having and uh, there's some different reactions to that some users would say you know that maybe the romance is still there they've just cut out the erotic aspect the, the details are i'm sure will become increasingly clear but yeah people forming these relationships yeah. and in this case explicitly forming relationships yeah. with these systems and then yeah when the system dies or gets changed you know robot companies have a tendency to go out of business with frightening frequency right. uh so if it's your robot dog that you formed a relationship with and now you can no longer download the support updates for it yes, yeah. uh this is a very uh this is a, a common occurrence yeah it, what, a, what a world uh you know i i i'm daily reading about this stuff uh but still every once in a while when you get a you know kind of a description uh of, of the trends altogether you see some picture emerge and all of a sudden you realize wow this is something else i'm not even sure what to what to call it um but you know it, it, it it's it's tempting to i i would imagine for some people it's tempting to somehow fault or even mock somebody who might develop this kind of parasocial relationship with um, a chatbot or, um, you know, some kind of robotic toy or whatever. But it, it seems to me it's not quite that simple, right? Because it, it, there is, the, the question almost seems to me, you know, what kind of society have we built where we have left people vulnerable to this kind of situation, right? Or, or relatedly, I just saw there was a, um, a book-length um, consideration of Japan's attempt to alleviate the, the crisis of, of elder care through mm -hmm. robotics, right? Through mm -hmm. various kinds of robots that will you know, somehow care for, keep company, keep the elderly company, right? Yep. Um, and, and that seems to me not a failure of technology, it's a failure of, of society at some level. Um, I'm, you know, I'm not sure where, where one would assign blame, right? But we, we would want to, you know, ideally a society in which there were, there were human caregivers and the elderly had a place within, et cetera. So, so the, the more complicated question seems to me, how do we, how do we build a society where 
these proclivities or these these genuine desires, human desires, are met uh, in in more humane ways. I'm not sure how how best to put that. Yeah, and I think for every advocate of uh, we need to have more humans and fewer machines doing these things, someone will present a use case whereby no this. This machine use case is going places where humans aren't going, or it's allowing for things that uh, are only, you know, available. People who are, for example, shut-ins yeah. somehow uh, may need this. I know in the case of these uh, AI socialization systems, you might call it, there are, for example, autistic Mm-hmm. Uh, teenagers and so forth that yep. will say this is a way of practicing my uh, social interactions. Um, and we can look at, for example, virtual reality church and say, oh, this this defies the idea of embodiment and we really need to be together. And then there will be people say, well, I'm stuck at home. This is meeting my needs. And uh, yeah, I think it's I'm I'm not probably the person to offer the definitive answer on what's the best way to integrate uh, such things, but it's an important question. Yeah, and, and there's and, and and I don't know that there is a definitive answer, right? I, because this also parallels, uh, I think, the, um, the the observation you made earlier. I, I forget exactly how you put it, right? But you know, you have uh, tools that would be very useful uh, therapeutically. That is, you know, to mm-hmm. um, you know repair, heal, or restore. But then there are those who will want to use some of those same techniques to to augment, right? To enhance, so mm-hmm. not just yeah. to kind of bring us to a, a measure of health, but to somehow transcend human limitations, right? So you you have these um, perfectly legitimate use cases, but that same technology stack can also then be used in ways that um, enable maybe, you know, uh, unjust or um, less than ideal social, you know, societal structures, right? And how, yeah. how you can get the... the the question it seems to me is, is how do you get the benefit as it were? How do you help these, you know, one example I use, you know, in the realm of social media is, you know, there are all these issues that I think can very clearly be uh, correlated with, with um, social media, social, personal, feel fairly confident saying it plays some role in the rise of teen mental health issues in the last Mm -hmm. decade, you know? Yeah. Uh, But then, you know, my, my counter example or or the, the complicating example, right. would be something like, People who suffer from extraordinarily rare diseases and, and in, yeah. a, in, a, in a previous era would never have interacted with somebody who has that same disease, but in a Facebook mm-hmm. group, they can find kind of solace and mutual affirmation. And, and that, yep. that's obviously incredibly valuable, right? One would hate to, to, to remove uh, that capacity, that capability. Um, and yet you have all of these other issues at scale in different situations, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, there was a time a year or two ago, I got to speak to a theology class of John Dyer, who mm. many of us are familiar with. And since we are, this is a podcast at the Christian Study Center, yeah. we do have an additional resource that maybe secular viewers or, or thinkers don't have. And it was one of Dyer's graduate students who made this comment. And I, I wish I knew the person's name so that I could attribute it properly. But um the person said that the question is not so much about evaluating the relative good or bad of a particular technology, but the the question is, how can I love my neighbor? Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that to the extent that this technology is being used as a way to enable and promote uh, 
oh, dare I say human flourishing. That is so much of the, the buzzword, right? But yeah. there are ways whereby it's used to actually kind of shunt people away, right? You say, well, if I make a chat bot, that means that I don't have to interact with a human being anymore because they can just interact with the chat bot. Yeah. That is contributing to isolation. Right. Uh, and um, how is it then uh, in the interest of various creators to try and enable that? And I think there is a sense of kind of both the responsibility of the creators and the responsibility of the users, whereby we say, you know, what am I willing to give my time uh, and attention to? Yeah. Yeah, and 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 having that um, higher order good that you're aiming at, you know, so that you the, the tools evaluated on something other than its effectiveness, or uh, you you you're able you have some measure by which to subordinate it if necessary. You know, I think obviously is critical. Yeah, Scott, as we uh, wrap up, what 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 else should we be thinking about? Uh, it was a very open ended question, just to kind of give you you know a final word on. Uh, on specifically text generating, I mean, there's there's so many things we could have touched on, but what else would you want to end on or what other note would you leave us with? Yeah, well, the fact that these are sort of general models, and so we've seen increasingly uh, AI systems that can become equally facile with images, with text, with audio, so mm -hmm. multimodal systems. Um, they're going to sort of increasingly, I think, function as the glue between different systems uh, of society that have been somehow separate or autonomous. And I think we'll see increasing glueness. People will be using uh, the chat GPT system as a way to integrate other systems together. And so I think that's something to be thinking about is not just are we going to have better, more reliable essays in the future? But what other things is this technology going to make possible that we maybe aren't even considering just yet? Yeah. Yeah. Good, good, good one to end on. Thank you so much, Scott. I really appreciate your time mm -hmm. and helping us think about some of these issues. Thank you as well. Always a pleasure. Mm -hmm.